This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome to the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. Hey, Sam. We are doing something a little bit different in this series. It's going to be a 10-part series, and it's asking the question, how did we get here? And so a lot of times you'll see people talking about modern-day culture. You'll see how we've come so far, so fast. You'll have people from previous generations that cannot make sense of how we ended up at this present moment. And so Will and I have decided to dive in, do a deep dive series going all the way back to even the Reformation to follow the cultural conversation that we're, we're going to track and we're going to try to bring it down into layman's terms and, and kind of do the 10,000 foot view, but to follow the trajectory of this, the cultural movements that help to explain how we got to where we are today. And I will say, Will, that in doing some of this research, going back from the founding through the 19th century with the philosophers that come along, Darwin and, and Marx, and getting into the 20th century with major influential voices in the realm of education like Dewey, and, and to see where we are today and to really dig into some of the cultural statistics, it's been pretty amazing. It's, it's been shocking at points. Yeah, very eye-opening to say the least. Yeah, it's been for sure eye-opening. And one of the things that it's actually helped me to do is to have categories for where we're going. Mm. So, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, I finally see a little bit more clearly how we got to this present cultural moment. And it really does help not to despair, even though the problems are very serious mm. and they are deeply troubling. Having seen where we've come from, and being able to diagnose where we took wrong turns is actually helpful in giving me hope for charting a course ahead. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and that's the hope of this. It's not just to recount all the bad and how we ended up in this place, but to push forward. That's right. And so that's that's what we are aiming for in this particular series. So like I said, it's going to be a 10-part series that's answering the question, America, how did we get here? And so I want to start just by giving a little bit of of historical context. Way, way back, long, long ago, 16 centuries ago plus, there was a guy named Augustine. And Augustine was one of the most famous church fathers. He's probably one of the most influential people that has ever lived on the planet. He's certainly one of the most influential theologians to ever exist. And he lives at a time when finally the Roman world had stopped persecuting the churches, You'd seen Constantine in the century before him, who was a Christian emperor, you know, self-described Christian. Then you had Theodosius, who comes along and says, the empire is now going to be Christian. And what happened during that time is you had a lot of the Christians who were thinking, okay, the fate of the church, the hope of the church is now directly tied to Rome. Rome is the greatest thing the world has had ever seen, and they were probably right about that. And then in 410, the unthinkable happens. For the first time in centuries, Rome gets sacked 
by a group called the Visigoths, and it turned the world upside down. The, the, uh, the notion that Rome could fall was so absolutely unthinkable to them back then that even church fathers like Jerome were asking, if Rome can perish, what can possibly be safe? And it led to this conversation about where does the church go from here? If Rome is falling, where do we pin our hopes? Because they, the church, many in the church, had wrongly envisioned that the kingdom of God was dependent upon the success of the kingdoms of men. And so at this point, Augustine determines that he is going to write this really famous, wonderful book called The City of God. And in that book, he says, hold on a minute, like we are not looking to our hope from the success of an empire or uh, even a, a city as great as Rome. Because we're Christians, we serve a greater city. We serve the city of God. And then he called upon Christians to recognize their allegiance and their citizenship to the city of God. And the reality is, is if you look back through scriptures, and Augustine will, will point this out, when you go back to the very beginning, when, when Nimrod seeks to build the city of Babel, the very next chapter gives you Abraham. And where Babel is building a city of man, and it's all about me and my name and my kingdom and my will and my comfort, it's all about me, Abraham becomes famous and he becomes a hero of the faith because he's looking forward to a city whose builder and architect is God. And so even from the earliest chapters of scripture, Genesis 11 and then Genesis 12, you have the battle between these two cities. That, that's right from the get-go. And what Augustine says is there are two cities, and here's, here's how you define them. Two loves has made the two cities. The love of self, even to the point of your, a contempt for God, made the earthly city. In other words, I need to be the center of the story, even if it means that I have to tear everything of God down. That is the earthly city. But he says the love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, that's what makes the heavenly city. And so as we go in this series, it would be really easy to draw comparisons to say, my goodness, I, it feels like we've been sacked by the Visigoths. <laughs> you know, the great experiment of America seems to be on life support if it hasn't already been extinguished. And I think a lot of people feel that same despair. And right now, it's time to hear the call of Augustine saying, no, you do not put your hopes in the, the cities of men. You serve a kingdom that is ultimately victorious, the city of God. And I want you to remember that as we go through this 10-part series, because otherwise there's going to be points where you would be led to despair. And so where we're going to start in the series is by looking at education, because the reality is you look at any philosopher that's, that's ever existed and they will tell you that the generations of the future are entirely dependent upon the education of the youth today. And so starting with education, let's jump in. We look at the, old, the world's oldest universities that we know of were founded by, out of Roman Catholicism. And the medieval period, you know, somewhere between 1088 and 1209 AD, that's kind of generally thought to be the case. 
You see universities popping up in Bologna and Paris and Oxford, Salamanca and Cambridge. And these still to this day, Oxford, Cambridge, Paris. These are some of the biggest universities of the world. Some of the most prestigious universities still to this day. And they established a Dominican order of monks purely with an academic purpose to go around and train up clergy and to train the laity and and to to make them capable in a broad range of subjects. And in fact, even, even down to this day, Catholics still hold, they have the highest number of, of higher education institutions, more than 1,800 institutions mm. around the world. So Catholicism, which way back in the day before the Protestant Reformation kind of owned the show of Christianity, was the biggest driving force of education in the ancient world. Now, the, when the Catholic Church consolidated its authority over all these different European nations, its system of ethics and governance reigned supreme for a thousand years. So when you get to 1500, it, it has totally consolidated everything. It's all powerful in Western Europe. There's no alternative legal authority. The church runs the show. And its authority was absolute and as we'll see in, in future episodes, it had gotten suffocating in, in areas of Europe. At, and so at this point, the Inquisition's still in full swing, and corruptions inside the Vatican were appalling. And so then you get to the early 1500s, and you see two splinters that come out of the Catholic Church that are going to be radically influential, tremendously influential, on the world, and they happen within four years of each other. And so, in 1513, you have a guy who's named Niccolo Machiavelli, and he is—he's called the father of modern political philosophy. Uh, and he writes a book called *The Prince*, which he'll be most famous for. And then, four years later, in 1517, you have a guy named Martin Luther, which who we all know, who's going to be the one who launches the Protestant Reformation. And these two guys are both coming out of the Catholic Church. And they're both calling people eventually. They're both calling people out of this, the framework that the Catholic Church had established. And we're going to get to why these are so influential. So, 1513, Machiavelli writes The Prince. It's published after his death. And, and just to summarize Machiavelli's philosophies, let me just give you a sampling of his statements. In his book, Machiavelli takes this radically atheistic approach. And so remember the two trains that are kind of leaving the depot of, of Catholicism here. This one's going to be an atheistic train. And, and he's basically saying, okay, if I cast off God, if there is no God, what is my driving ethic? What should be my purpose, my, my MO for life? And he says things like, the ends justify the means. So look at the prize, <laughs> figure out what you want, and then whatever it takes to get that is justifiable. It doesn't matter. Morality doesn't matter because morality, traditional morality, is seen as coming from God. And we've thrown that out, right? That doesn't matter anymore. He says politics have no relation to morals. Good. Right? Like, again, it's saying you see the prize, you go get it. Yeah. Morals don't matter. You know, the ends justify the means. He says it is better to be feared than loved if you cannot be both. So what does that make you think? Like if you have power, just dominate, dominate, like tyranny is fine. Go, go and seize what you want 
and make people fear you because if they fear you, they won't get in your way of what you want to accomplish. And then he says, men are so simple of mind and so much dominated by their immediate needs that a deceitful man will always find plenty who are ready to be deceived. Like he's just saying it, just straight up saying it. And so Machiavelli comes with an atheistic friend. By the way, this, this kind of philosophy, you still find this in the colleges and the high school classes because it was the, it was really the first to become famous of its kind. That's why he's called how sad that this guy is the father of modern political philosophy. Right. And he fits right in. Yep. You're like, yep, that's, that's who they are. Not shocked. (laughs) Right. But you have Catholicism and then out of Catholicism comes this atheistic train track. That's basically saying, go do whatever you want to do. So long as you get what you want to get. Morals are like the stars, you know, they're beautiful, but they're way too distant to cast any useful light on the earthly path we're walking. And so what he would say is, you know what, you need to go, you know, ditch the stars and go find yourself a man-made lantern. And he says, you, you know, base your ethics on what men and societies actually do, not on what they ought to do. So Machiavelli has this sad, very pragmatic point that like, if you sit around and wait on humanity to do the right thing, (laughs) it's not going to happen. You're going to be waiting a long time. Right. And so you need to operate in this world as though humanity is utterly broken and take advantage of that brokenness and chart your course based on that brokenness, exploit it because that's the reality of the world. When Christianity is telling you that you need to take the higher road, that's going to cost you. And it's going to tell you to turn the other cheek and it's going to tell you to do things sometimes where you're going to be exploited. He's like, that's just stupid. You know, the, the world's going to walk all over you. Ditch that. Ditch those morals and get what you want. And why would he say that? Because Machiavelli is coming at this whole conversation from a framework that says this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, then your treasure is to be grabbed in this life. There is no life to come. There is no hope of heaven. There's no reason why you should pursue the moral life if it's going to cost you here because here is all you've got. And so it's very much a city of men. Yeah. This is, we're not talking about the city of God that's being stored up for you or any inheritance that might be out there. And so on the other side of that, you have Martin Luther who writes, you know, a lot about Christian liberty. He talks about how, you know, just like the apostle Paul said, that your citizenship is in heaven, right? That, that you hold a hope there that this world cannot throw anything at you that can ultimately steal the liberty and the inheritance that is yours in Christ can never be taken away from you. And the prize and the treasure and the fulfillment that you have in Christ is far greater than anything the world could throw at you. And therefore, you can pursue what's right, even if it costs you, because you've got a greater inheritance to come. And so one of the things that comes out of, of the Reformation is the five solas, which if you, you know, it's, it's, it's coming out of Catholicism, you know, it's scripture alone, instead of incorporating Catholic tradition and encyclicals and everything else. No, it is scripture alone. That is the only authority. That's the basis for life and salvation and everything else. 
we're getting rid of everything else that corrupts religion. It's scripture alone, and it's for God's glory alone, and it's by Christ, it's by Christ alone, and grace alone, and and faith alone, and God's glory alone. All those were the five major solas. Did I hit them all? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that idea of sola scriptura radically changed the world because in the Roman Catholic Church, you read from the Latin Vulgate, which wasn't the common language for any of the European nations for the most part. And so Luther at the time, there's there's movements to get, you know, Bibles written and translations of people's, you know, native tongues. Luther actually worked on that project himself. And what they wanted people to do was to read the scriptures for themselves because it's not a priest who's an authority over you. It is ultimately the scriptures that are your highest authority, and that is where you owe your allegiance because that is the very word of God. Well, if scriptures are going to be your your rule of life and the authority over you, what should you probably be able to do? Read. <laughs> you have to be able to read. And so it's the Protestant Reformation that set about and sparked this great interest in learning that it gave light and rise to the Enlightenment because it was during the Protestant Reformation that literacy exploded. And so just to give you, let's walk through history. In the first century Roman Empire, there less than 10% of the people were literate, according to historians. Like that's I mean, that's basically the wealthy, the privileged. Most people are illiterate. They couldn't read a scroll or a parchment if you gave it to them. You fast forward through the Middle Ages, that, that number still remained south of 20%. So less than one in five people still, huh. which is it's just in modern days. It's, it's That's crazy. Everybody can at least read yeah. and what they comprehend. That's another story. <laughs> But then you have Gutenberg's printing press in 1436, and you're thinking, okay, now we can mass produce books. And yet, literacy still doesn't skyrocket. Because no one wants to read those books because they can't read. <laughs> right? They can't. Well, one, they can't read. But there's no incentive to get yeah. out there and read. If, if you're a, a farmer and, and there's no, like, why would I learn to read? When you get to 1517 and the Reformation comes and Sola Scriptura becomes the basis of faith and people all of a sudden catch fire for their faith, it's it's precious to them. And now they're expected to read the scriptures within a hundred years. Literacy rates in Protestant countries like England and the Netherlands soared north of 50%, more than doubling. Like that's a tremendous leap in education. The Dutch literacy rate increased from 12% to 53% in one century. Wow. Like, we can't move the needle on literacy rates here. Even now, we, we don't move the literacy rates like that in any, in any nations. But the literacy in Catholic countries still remained around 20% for another century or two. So you look at predominantly Catholic countries like Spain or Italy, and they lag the Protestant mm. countries because it was seen that the Bible was the most important book. And people that were taught it is your sole basis of all truth and life and, and salvation really wanted to learn how to read. And even today, still to this day, rates of literacy remain noticeably lower when you go to non-Christian countries. So like North Africa that's dominated by Islam, literacy rates are through the floor by comparison. You go to the Arabian countries, they're through the floor by comparison. You go to India that's dominated by Hinduism, 
literacy rates don't even come close to the Western and industrialized nations. And so you see that there is a direct correlation to nations that were Protestant and nations that were then influenced by the Western world and commerce and capitalism that ultimately emerged and trading markets and things like that. Literacy exploded. And so learning had a lot to do with the Protestant Reformation. And that's fascinating because we definitely don't talk like that today. Yeah, no. I mean, we had this, I mean, in all my life, I'm, I'm 29, so there's been, a, it felt feels like maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like there's always been this strict, you know, church versus state kind of separation. But here, and we're going to see this all over the place as we go through this history, what a huge result of education and Christianity being together. Yeah, it's, it really is upside down because when you study history, one of the things that you discover is that it's always been the church that's on the cutting edges of learning. Like all throughout history, it was the church that was launching these things. And today, and the same thing you see with literacy with the Protestant Reformation, but today I would say it's not just the separation of church and state. I would say that there's a mindset today that Christianity is actually an impediment to good mm. education. Yeah. You know, they're seeing well, the Bible says, you know, <laughs> like they're they're backwards, they're, you know, fundamentalist or are goofy and and that's the way that the world sees us. And the reality is is from it was the it was the Protestant Reformation that helped to spark the education and the reading and everything else that ultimately fueled the enlightenment, good and bad elements from the enlightenment. In this series, we're asking the question, how did we get here? And we're looking at the at a decline in society, at, at things falling apart. And if you go through history, the greatest thinkers have understood that the future of societies depends on education. Aristotle said, all who have meditated on the art of governing mankind have been convinced that the fate of empires depends on the education of the youth. Lincoln said that the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government and the next. And so that's absolutely correct. You see that. I mean, education shapes everything. And so let's pause for a moment because for the Christian, the responsibility for education lies with the parent. I mean, Deuteronomy makes that abundantly clear when it says that you shall teach your children diligently about the laws of God and the promises of God and the love of God. That responsibility lies with the parents. But even in the scriptures, the church or the priests were to support the parents in that endeavor. That was the model that you saw in the earliest days of America. The church worked with parents to educate the youth. Later on in this episode, we're going to see just how involved the church was in education in our earliest days as a country, but I want you to stop for a moment and compare that to where we are today. In the last several decades, there has been a systematic campaign to purge God or any religious influence from the realm of education, and that's alarming. Because contrary to popular belief, this did not create a neutral vacuum. Other worldviews that we're going to talk about in the episodes to come that are very disturbing and very hostile to Christianity rushed in and filled the void. And perhaps every bit as alarming is this prevailing mindset in the public school districts that says that they know better than parents and they are beginning to trample 
on rights that were traditionally held by parents. And perhaps this explains why a recent Gallup poll found that only 26% of Americans have confidence in our public school system. In the last month alone, let me give you some headlines of, of instances where public school districts are conspiring against the rights of parents to train up their children. So here's one. In Maryland, the Montgomery County School District had a policy that would keep school officials from informing parents if a child was beginning to undergo gender transition. And so parents sued the school district, as I would. I would be apoplectic if a school held that information from me about my kid. And so a three-judge panel of the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the parents and said that the school could continue doing that. That same district approved LGBTQ curriculum for little kids. Preschoolers were going to read a book called Pride Puppy, which is a story about attending a pride parade. And it's got, you know, it's got leather and drag queens and lingerie. Elementary kids were reading books with themes on transgenderism and choosing pronouns and being an intersectional ally. And so when religious parents pleaded with the district just for an opt-out, not saying, you know, we want to ban this curriculum, we just want our children to opt out of this, and they, the district said no. So they sued, and a federal judge sided with the school, claiming that there was no proof that this curricula involved the indoctrination of their children, which is crazy. On the other hand, if you have school districts that fight to protect parental rights, they get attacked. So this, the same thing happened to, to three separate school districts in New Jersey just last month. The school boards voted to implement policies that would require school officials, administrators, counselors, teachers to just simply notify parents if a student changed their gender identity or their pronouns or their name or, or preferred bathrooms or if they signed up for a sports team of a different gender common sense, right? But the New Jersey attorney general actually sued the school districts to overturn that policy, to make it to where they didn't have to tell parents. And a judge barred the districts from implementing these new rules so that parents would be kept in the dark. The Chino Valley Unified School District in California, same thing. They voted to enact a policy that would require school officials to just inform parents about a student's choice to identify with the opposite gender. And so the California attorney general sued that school district to overturn the policy and a San Bernardino County superior court judge prohibited the district's efforts to protect parental rights. And he said that the district's efforts to involve parents was a quote, clear and present danger to trans kids in the district. And we think, Oh, these are just, these are, you know, these are just fringe things. These, these don't have, they, no, they're not anomalies. At least 168 school districts governing 5,904 schools nationwide have rules on the books that prevent faculty and staff members from disclosing to parents when a student's gender status is changing or when they're undergoing transition unless they have the student's permission. And so you just see the trampling of parental rights in these schools. Uh, and, and many of the school districts are now facing lawsuits, which I think is wonderful. Because if I'm a parent and you do that to me, I am coming after you with claws out. 
Uh, just last week, from from today's recording, just last week, a California parent won $100,000 in a lawsuit against a school district that had counseled her 10-year-old daughter to transition to become a man. The district's policy required that school official to keep this a secret, quote, unless the student expressly authorized the parents to be informed, end quote. Like, how crazy? It feels like the inmates are running the asylum. Like, you can't trust 10-year-olds to know what's best for them. And the fact that school officials are keeping parents in the dark and listening to the whims of a 10-year-old is just insane. I'm glad the school district lost this lawsuit. Last year, a Florida couple sued the Clay County School District. This is still in the courts. After their 12-year-old daughter attempted suicide twice, and they learned that a counselor from the district had been counseling her through all this gender identity confusion and had chosen to withhold that from the parents, despite the fact that there were two suicide attempts. In April, a Maine mom filed a lawsuit against the school district for counseling a 13-year-old to undergo gender transition and told the kid, keep this a secret from your mom. Insane. So the National Education Association, which is the nation's largest teachers union, is a very vocal supporter of minors that want to engage in gender transition. So they put out a document entitled Schools in Transition. And in it, they tell teachers and administrators, quote, ask whether the student's family is accepting in order to avoid inadvertently putting the student at risk of greater harm by discussing with the student's family. In other words, Ask the student if it's okay for the parents to know because 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds know best about what parents should be informed about. And consider how creepy this is. Like we have adults in our school systems training school staff members to have intimate conversations about gender and sexuality with children while keeping it a secret from parents. Like let that sink in. That's a problem. And we are getting into a territory where it's not just debates about educational philosophy or teacher pay. We're looking at a nation that is actively undermining the very foundations by which we transmit worldview to future generations. We're seeing the the decades-long erosion and purge of God from public schools, and now we are seeing the erosion of parental rights so that the state is now emerging as the primary provider of worldview education to our children, with the home and the church being dismissed into virtual irrelevancy. And so when we ask the question, how did we get here? This plays a large role in it. Once upon a time, the church and families took the role of training up the next generation as a sacred duty, an obligation before God. And it would have been inconceivable for them to relinquish that role to anyone else, especially those hostile to the faith. And as we will see for the remainder of this episode, at the foundations of America, the church played an enormous role in shaping the hearts and minds of future generations. As you take this brief tour in American history and the role that Christianity played in education in our country, I want you to imagine what would take place in our country if the church and the family 
reclaimed that sacred duty to train up the next generation. So now let's skip and we go from the Protestant Reformation and, you know, fast forward to the shores of America in the 1600s with the pilgrims and the Puritans and the founding of, of different colonies. And one of the first ones is the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it's settled by the pilgrims and the Puritans. This is where you find Plymouth. One of the very first laws that they pass in 1647, It's it's got a hilarious name. It's the Old Deluder Satan Act. That's so awesome. Like, <laughs> like deluder meaning deceiver. And listen, listen to the to what is in the law. It being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to mm-hmm. keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as in former times by keeping them in an unknown tongue. That's a shot at the Catholics with the Latin Vulgate. It is therefore ordered that every township in this jurisdiction, after the Lord has increased them to fifty households, shall forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children to write and read. So literacy law, one of the very first and earliest laws that you find in the new, you know, the Americas, the colonies. And it is passed because we want kids to know the scriptures. And so that is the ethic that you find in the 1600s after the Protestant Reformation. So let's go to Connecticut with the New Haven Code of 1655. Very similar, we want our kids to be able to read. Listen to this. It is ordered that all parents and masters do duly endeavor, either by their own ability or labor to provide, that all their children and apprentices, as they grow capable, may through God's blessing attain at least so much as to be able to duly read the scriptures, to understand the main grounds and principles of Christian religion necessary to salvation. That sounds like modern laws. <laughs> I mean, so radically different. And in this, what you find is we want them to read because we care about their soul, because we believe that this life is a mist and a vapor and the greater ultimate reality is an eternal one. Radical shift in the way we think then to now. Uh, in 1690, so we're, I'm just, I'm just going to kind of give you the fire hose here of, of examples. In 1690, you have the New England Primer that's published. It's going to be the best-selling book in America for more than a century outside of the Bible. It sold 5 million copies in America when the population barely reached 4 million. So like <laughs> for every man, woman, and child alive, a book has been sold and then some. That's 125% of the population. So if you were looking to put that into today's terms, it would be like selling 425 million books today. Wow. So yeah. that's a lot. Yeah, that would be J.K. Rowling like, got, got nothing on this, right? And it's infused with all this instruction and biblical lessons, like one of the pledges. So I want you to imagine this. The students would be required to recite this. I will fear God and honor the king, because remember, the revolution hasn't happened yet. I will honor my father and mother. I will obey my superiors. I will submit to my elders. I will love my friends. I will hate no man. I will forgive my enemies and pray to God for them. I will, as much as in me lies, keep all God's holy commandments. I will learn my catechism. I will keep the Lord's day holy. I will reverence God's sanctuary, for our God is a consuming fire. I think that's a pretty good pledge. That is. Yeah, it's actually helpful helpful for me. Except for the king part. Yeah, yeah, no king. Gotta get rid of that. King, I mean, make it King Jesus. 
But to learn their letters, you know, like just giving examples out of the book, to learn the letters, students are being taught biblical stories and concepts like A, well, Adam and Eve, their God did grieve. B, so next to an open Bible, it'll say, thy life to mend this book, attend. T, time cuts down all, both great and small, teaching them more, their mortality. You, Uriah's beauteous wife, made David seek his life. W, story of Jonah, whales in the sea, God's voice obey. No one said they were great rhymers. <laughs> this, is, this is rough. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely not going to uh, be hot on the, the hip-hop charts. Z, Zacchaeus did climb the tree, his Lord to see. That one, okay, that, that one's a little better. But you get the idea, like they they infused the education to teach them the scriptures. You, you get into 1800. So now we're talking after the Constitution, which like when I was being brought up, we learned that the Constitution happened and then basically like any religious influence in education or government just stopped because yeah. separation of church and state. In 1828, Noah Webster published the American Dictionary. He's called the schoolmaster to America. He's the father of American education. He's got all those titles. And the foreword of his dictionary, Webster writes this. In my view, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. And you hear that and you think, wow, that must be the exception because that's pretty extreme. Yeah. No, this is going to be, you're going to see like, this is just absolutely the common understanding back then in 1836. So prior to this, the, the new England primer is the number one book for education. Number one curriculum used in the nation, massive bestseller. Well, in 1836, brothers Alexander and William McGuffey published the McGuffey Reader, and that replaces the New England Primer as the most popular textbook. And so you got to remember, 1836, like these books are coming four decades after the ratification of the Constitution, but they're officially adopted as the public school textbook in 37 states. Between 1836 and 1920, this book continues for a century, sells more than 120 million copies. And that's when and the, the highest population at the end of that, 1920, reaches 106 million. So again, it's sold more copies than there are people. And I want you to just consider some samples taken from the McGuffey Reader. And in an essay directed at parents and teachers, listen, listen to what they say. The Christian religion is the religion of our country. From it, are derived our prevalent notions of the character of God, the great moral governor of the universe. On its doctrines are founded the peculiarities of our free institutions. In its revelations are found the only certain grounds of hope in reference to that else unknown future which lies beyond the horizon of time. Its maxims, its precepts, its sentiments, and even its very spirit have become so incorporated with the mind and soul of civilization and all refinement that it cannot be eradicated or even opposed without eminent hazard of all that is beautiful, lovely, and valuable in the arts and science and in society. And so here you have a book that's the number one till, till 1920, the number one curriculum in the nation. And what is it saying? The Bible needs to be revered above all else. If it ever loses its place, it's going to cause imminent hazard to everything in our country. 
Well, right? <laughs> like we did. I didn't learn this when I went through school. McGuffey Reader gives this. So like kids had to. This is instructions to the children. At the close of day, before you go to sleep, you should not fail to pray to God to keep you from sin and from harm. Put your trust in Him, and the kind care of God will be with you, both in your youth and in your old age. Yeah, that's not the history class that I remember. And I want you to understand what this did for children was it gave them a belief that they were valued beyond what their present circumstance was, beyond what their failures were, that that this life was not the sum total of their existence, that there was a God and an eternity and and a hope of heaven that was beyond them, that there was grace and mercy for something better, an inheritance. And when that has been taken away from children, it's actually caused them tremendous mental harm, huge anxiety rates and depression and suicide, as we'll see. And so here's here's where I want to stop because, okay, we, we've heard private publishers, okay, New England Primer, Noah Webster, you know, McGuffey. These guys aren't lawmakers. They're not presidents. They're not the Supreme Court. You know, this is just outside influence and anybody could write anything in a book. So let's pause there for a moment and let's look at what government said at the time of our founding. First one I want to give to you is the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So listen to this as it's talking about what is expected for education in America. Ready? Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. This is the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. This is right when the constitutional debates are underway and you have all of the same players saying religion, morality, and knowledge in the schools shall forever be encouraged. Well, <laughs> we, we made them break that promise, right? You have President George Washington, right, who writes to the Delaware Indians, and he's promising to fund Christian education for them. Listen to what he writes in a letter. He says, you do well to wish to learn our arts and our ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise intention. And do you know what Congress did? Congress funded missionaries to these Indians, provided Bibles for them, built churches for them, and schools for them. President Thomas Jefferson used these public funds to pay the salaries of of priests and ministers and church constructions for the Indian Indian tribes. And he, Jefferson, encouraged William and Mary, one of the earliest universities in America, He funded their Brafferton Initiative, which used taxpayer funding to maintain, quote, a perpetual mission among the Indian tribes, the object of which, besides instructing them in the principles of Christianity, when these objects are accomplished with one tribe, the missionary might pass on to another. In other words, we're going to not only fund missionaries, but we want them to continue to go from one tribe to the next and just keep on planting churches in these Indian villages. Jefferson, as president, actually also served as the D.C. school board president, and that, he, that lasted till 1809. So the president that followed up Jefferson is James Madison, who's the primary architect of the U.S. Constitution. In 1813, he gets the first progress report from one of the schools in the D.C. area, and I want you to listen to what this report is boasting about. Listen to this. 55 students have learned to read in the Old and New Testaments. 
26 are now learning to read Dr. Watts's hymns. So in addition to having the New England primer, okay, you, you think you're worried about those having comments about the Bible in them. <laughs> no, the Bible is the actual curriculum using, and the Watts hymnal is actual curriculum used in the schools of Washington, D.C., which is wild to me. And they're not trying to hide this. Oh, I mean, no. these are open letters. No one's like, oh, we, we got to sneak this in. No, this is like out there blatantly like, no, this is what we read and this is how we learn. Yeah, and we're not even to the most egregious violations of the separation of church and state yet. <laughs> you know, wait for that. And so Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin by, by, I think, universally is believed that he never became a Christian. He wrote letters about his interactions with George Whitfield where he was saying, you know, Whitfield never had the pl- the privilege of seeing me give my life to Christ. But in one of his letters to the great evangelist who helped to spark the the great awakening of the 17 from 1730 to 1770, Franklin wrote him and said, "Pennsylvania schools will absolutely teach the students that the basis of law was delivered first and with best warrant by Moses in the Pentateuch." So here you've got Ben Franklin saying, "Of course our students are going to learn that the law came from Moses. And then listen to what he says. He said, pupils in Pennsylvania should learn, quote, the excellency of the Christian religion above all others, ancient or modern. Wow. Like this is a guy who's who's one of the, the founding fathers that's probably just, you know, he's a deist. He's not inside the Christian bubble. And he's saying, of course, our schools are going to teach the Christian religion above all others because it's the most excellent. And like when you see, as, you, as we go through the rest of the series, you're going to see this is not cherry-picking history. Uh, the Library of Congress, right? So this is, this is not somebody that's in the Christian camp. This, these are not evangelicals or fundamentalists. The modern Library of Congress website still to this day acknowledges, listen to this quote, it is no exaggeration to say that on Sundays in Washington during the administrations of Thomas Jefferson and of James Madison, so we're talking 1801 to 1817, the state became the church. Within a year of his inauguration, Jefferson began attending church services in the House of Representatives. Madison followed Jefferson's example, although unlike Jefferson, who rode on horseback to church in the Capitol, Madison came in a coach. Throughout his administration, Jefferson permitted church services and all the executive branch buildings, the gospel was also preached in the Supreme Court chambers. So like all of the government buildings, you know, like the Department of this, the Department of that, the U.S. Congress building, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court chambers, everywhere on Sunday opened up and was used as a church, and the gospel was preached all over D.C. That's crazy. What? Like, I remember the first time that I had ever heard that. I was blown away. And then the the Library of Congress adds, the U.S. Capitol building housed, quote, the largest Protestant Sabbath audience in the United States during the mid-1800s. So the U.S. Capitol didn't just allow people to come in and hear a service. They were the the nation's first megachurch. That was the principles and understanding that our founders had, that Christianity was to be revered because it was the basis of who we were as a nation. All right, so Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution, 
like just some of these quotes are just so wonderful. He said, let divines and philosophers, statesmen and patriots unite their endeavors for what? To renovate the age by impressing the minds of men with the importance of educating their little boys and girls, inculcating the minds of youth, the fear and the love of the deity. Now, this wasn't a new philosophy of education that, that just suddenly showed up when the founders arrived. They, they'd been trained up in the New England Primer, in universities that were thoroughly Christian. The Encyclopedia Britannica says the Christian church created the bases of the Western system of education. And you see that in all the major universities that were our earliest bastions of higher education. And these, when, when I first came across the history of these universities, I was stunned because they're certainly not in the same category of where they were founded or the charter that they were founded under. And so let's go through some of the Ivy League, some of America's most prestigious and some of our earliest universities. Let's start with Harvard, <laughs> Harvard University. Harvard was founded in 1636, so not that, and it's in Massachusetts. So we're talking not, not that long after Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock. And it was named after Pastor John Harvard. Hmm. Its charter declared that it was founded, what would you, what would you guess? Well, I know, but it's, I would not have guessed what I know. What would you have guessed? I don't know. It's, it's the top echelon of academics, lawyers, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you're expecting, because that's, that's modern day, oh, it's got to be lawyers or you great thinkers, philosophers. No, it's charter declared that it was founded to, quote, train illiterate clergy. The founding documents claimed that they were, quote, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. So they wanted to spread literacy and great learning among the pastors of the area. Rule number one to be admitted into Harvard when it was first open is you had to have an ability to translate the Greek New Testament from Greek to English. <laughs> like, that's just wild. Like, not just, you know, you had to know it. You had to be able to translate it. You had to be that familiar with the New Testament and to love it so much that you wanted to learn it in its original language, that you would teach yourself Greek. Rule number two, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well, the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. What's what's the purpose of going to college? Like, can you imagine saying that to somebody today? Hey, do you know why you go to college? It's to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And, you know, it's Jesus is the foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Like, it, it feels like you're talking to a different universe. Yeah, could you imagine that, like, walking into Harvard right now and reading that? <laughs> You'd get canceled. For sure. You would get canceled real quick. I just saw a recent article where Harvard in the last couple of years they appointed a new chaplain, and the chaplain was an atheist. It's nice. like bizarro world. It's just it's the all the theater of the absurd these days. Um, anything that can mock Christianity or undermine its moral teachings is absolutely embraced and celebrated in academia today. Rule number three: 
Students must read scriptures twice per day and be prepared to offer reflections on their devotional time. Now, remember, this is for pastors as <laughs> primarily. Rule number four, you will not make light of God's name, his worship, or his word. Then it's 1692, the Harvard motto that was found inside their seal, you know, the famous shield with the three open books on it that says Veritas. Originally, that, that, that seal had Latin words around the rim, and the Latin words said truth for Christ and his church. So Veritas means truth. Now that's all that's left on the seal. It used to say truth for Christ and his church, and that was removed in 1880. Um, and we'll see as we go through the series, why was it removed in 1880? What happened? Well, we're going to trace this out and follow the rabbit. College of William and Mary, again, one of the oldest universities, founded in 1691 by a royal charter from King William III and Queen Mary II, and listen to what they said. The charter for the school, it was founded so that, quote, the Church of Virginia may be furnished with a seminary of ministers of the gospel and that the youth may be piously educated in good letters and manners and that the Christian religion may be propagated among the Western Indians to the glory of Almighty God. Wow. that I mean, that would be offensive now to evangelize the Indians. I mean, that would be seen as offensive. And yet back then they cared so much for the eternal soul of these people that they founded universities and trained up pastors to go and teach them about the love of God. It was seen as noble then, and it still should be, quite frankly. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, Yale University, because now if you if you were to rank the Ivies top three, what would you who how would you rank them? Harvard. Harvard. Yes. Yale. Yale. Probably throw a third. Is is Dartmouth Ivy League? Dartmouth is. So Dartmouth. I'd put Princeton as three. But yeah, they're they're up there. I they're close for three, probably. So Yale founded in 1701 by a coalition of ten pastors. The Board of Trustees claimed that it was founded out of a quote, zeal for upholding and propagating of the Christian Protestant religion. Each student saw that the main, this is another quote, for each student, the main end of his study, to wit, to know God and Jesus Christ. Their logo, still still to this day on their banner, you see a book that's open. And if you look at the logo carefully, you'll see that there's Hebrew letters on this open book. Gee, what do you think that is? Well, Hebrew letters on an open book. Yeah, it's telling you that all education, all truth, all sound knowledge is coming to you from the scripture. And those Hebrew words there are uh, Urim and Thummim, which are Hebrew words that mean how you find the will of God. And around it, and there's a banner that is at the bottom that says Lux et Veritas, which means light and truth, which are very biblical themes of what Christ brings, right? He is the light of the world. He is the truth. And so there you have Yale University. And then you get to Princeton University, and you're like, okay, well, when are we going to find some godless ones? Yeah. <laughs> it's You have to wait a while before you run into some godless universities. Princeton University is originally founded as, as the College of, of New Jersey during the Great Awakening in 1746, and it's founded to be a seminary to train up pastors. On the Princeton seal that you can still see to this day, 
There's Latin that says, listen to this, under God's power, she flourishes. Hmm. Again, in the, on the Princeton seal, you see the open book with the Latin words that, that literally are saying Old and New Testaments. Now, before they, they actually changed the seal, it used to be a seal that had you know those, those elements, but it also included the Latin words that mean, I restore to the dead. And so what they were saying is, I restore all things to the dead. It was pointing you to the resurrection. Mm. And then it had that book opened with the Old and New Testaments that were positioned over the diploma from the school and all other books from different fields of study, saying, no, 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 the scripture reigns supreme over every other field of study. Jonathan Edwards, if you've heard that name, was one of the most famous pastors that went all over the nation during the Great Awakening, just lighting revivals in city after city after city. Well, Reverend Jonathan Edwards was among its earliest presidents. Then you have a guy like, listen to this, Reverend John Witherspoon. He's the second longest serving president in Princeton history. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a member of the Continental Congress. Listen to what he says when he's president. Imagine Princeton University president saying this today. Ready? Accursed be all learning which sets itself in opposition to the cross of Christ. Wow. It's unimaginable. Yeah. If you learn anything that's in opposition to the cross of Christ, it is cursed. Mm. Like, wow. And when we hear that in our modern culture, we think, man, this guy's kind of fringe. He's, he's out there. You know, he's, he's pretty intense. Listen to the caliber of people who studied under this guy. President James Madison, you remember him, right? Primary architect of the Constitution. Vice President Aaron Burr, you probably heard that name. Nine cabinet officers, 21 U.S. senators. And you got to remember, this is when the country's pretty small. There's not 100 senators. There's only two per state. And he had 21 of them, 39 members of the House of Representatives, three justices to the Supreme Court, 12 governors, and numerous delegates to the Constitutional Convention. This guy's massively influential at the founder. In fact, when, when the shot heard round the world took place, you know, that launched the American Revolution, when the prime minister of Great Britain heard this, he said, cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. It's awesome. Talking about this guy. Like the, the church, the pastors were so influential on everything, all the learning, all of the schools. They were not only steeped in the great wisdom of the world, but they held the Bible as the ultimate authority to interpret all of that other stuff through. And they were outrageously, tremendously brilliant. You get to the University of Pennsylvania and, and the logo that's around it in Latin, their seal, is without virtue, everything is useless. But when you look at their seal, it's a number of books that are stacked up on top of one another. What do you think is the top book? theology over astronomy philosophy mathematics logic rhetoric grammar theology reigns supreme dartmouth college here's here's your your guess right dartmouth college if you look at the seal it's a book that is in the heavens and it is shining a light down on a building what do you think that is you know, it's the scriptures that are paid. They're giving the way. They're a light to the path of anybody who comes there. And you see Indians that are coming into the building and they're walking toward it, carrying an open book. 
and their charter is going to be focused on evangelizing the Indians. And the last one that I'm going to hit you with, and this is where we're going to close today's episode, but I want you to hang on to this because Columbia University is going to be tremendously important as the series continues. And they should probably Google this image right now as you... Yeah, go- t- just Google the Columbia seal because it's it's there's a lot going on in this thing. And you'll notice that on top of the seal, you see a, a great light, this glorious light that's breaking into the seal. And inside of that light, you see just a simple word in Hebrew. Well, that word is Yahweh the covenantal name of God that is shining down upon a mother who is teaching her children. On the bottom of the seal, you literally see it, uh, the citation of 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, which is like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. So what does Columbia want you to know? It wants you to know the message of salvation. The mother is sitting on a throne and she's holding open a book that has the words on it that mean living word. It's what scripture calls itself, that it is a living word. It's active. Latin around the rim says, in your light, we see light. The Hebrew banner that's coming off the chair that the mother is sitting in just simply says God's light in in Hebrew. And in the distance, behind the children, if you look on the the right-hand side of the seal, off in the distance, you find an open tomb with a stone rolled away. Because all education that was intended to come out of Columbia was sourced by the truth of the resurrection. That this world is not all there is. That there is a city of God that is far, far, far more important for our attention, our focus, and our citizenship than the cities of men. And that is what our foundations were steeped in. That was the kind of education that the earliest generations of America were receiving. And the reality is that 106 out of the first 108 colleges that were founded in America were founded as Christian institutions. That's where we began as a nation. That's wild because that's not how it's framed today. No. Especially in higher education, thinking about colleges, you would be shocked to find all of this out. Completely. People today might look at that and say, I'm really grateful that things have changed. But the reality is, and this is where we want to start, things have changed. And so the whole purpose of this series, you know, we're starting off, we want you to see Where did the nation start? What were we steeped in? What was our character? What was our identity? Like, what did we believe? In our next episode, we're going to actually take a look at what were the driving philosophies, the foundational principles that the founders came together using scripture and the great wisdom of the the period to say, this is who America is going to be. These are going to be our bedrock foundational principles to enable future generations to enjoy great liberty and prosperity. And you'll see that this education that they received yielded some of the most incredibly brilliant men that have ever walked the world. And they gave us a a system of government that was brilliant beyond anything that the world had ever seen. And to my opinion, that the world still to this day has ever seen. And it's worth giving their perspective a listen 
And it's so fascinating to see how our form of government came about. Really brilliant men. So I want to thank you for joining us as we launch this. The first of its kind where we are doing a a multi-part episode in a series. And this series being an important one. How did we get here? Join us next time as we dive into the philosophies behind America's foundation. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero and Inspiration by Keys of Moon, Story by Maidan, and Tragedy by Maxco Music. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Community Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.